0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. Today is Monday, March 14th, 2022. I am your host, Matt Norton, here with our co-host, Giselle Herrera. Giselle, what's going on?
1: I am doing oh, as okay as we can be with everything going on lately, but you know, happy to be here, happy to be talking with you, talking shop, and uh, getting into some of the the stories we have lined up for today
0: yeah this is a, a nice little 30 minute escape from uh, mm-hmm. from reality <laughs> so mm-hmm. no nick today he's still on vacation and he will be back for friday's episode of this week so with that let's get into the show you're a new listener welcome to the planet today here on tpt we cover the latest in climate change wildlife conservation renewable energy and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way monday and friday this show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics tpt has a little bit for everyone so we're happy to have you here as a listener
1: and speaking of you, listener, please, please, please review The Planet Today on Apple and Spotify, wherever you're hearing this.
0: Yes, please do. And while you have that Apple Podcast app open, just write us a quick review. It takes like 30 seconds and it makes our entire day, week, month. If you write a good <laughs> enough one, it might make my 2022.
1: Let it, let it be a good one. Make our 2022.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's give the people what they came here for. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, released part two of its sixth assessment report earlier this month.
1: Overall, it was worked on by about 270 authors from 67 countries with contributions from each of the three IPCC working groups.
0: The whole report is 3,675 pages, so neither of us read it. (laughs) And really, you don't have to read the entire thing. It's broken up into several chapters, so if any of the section headlines really pique your interest, go check it out. But there's also the 37-page policy summary and the 96-page technical summary if you're looking to really dive into this. Um, Just for transparency, the 96-page technical summary goes over my head a lot because I'm not a technical scientist, but the 37-page policy summary pretty interesting. And there's a lot going on there that I think a lot of people might be interested in checking out. So we will link that in your show notes. Part one of this report, the physical science basis was released in August, and that covered the indisputable role that human activities have played in warming the Earth's atmosphere and causing the climate to change dramatically.
1: And that first part focused on what we're already experiencing and the different possible climate features.
0: So part two is titled, Impacts, Adaptation, and Vulnerabilities, and it covers adaptation strategies that can increase our resilience in the face of climate-related risks that can and likely will be coming.
1: It also covered some of the major obstacles that climate action faces. Page six of the summary for policymakers shows an important graphic with climate change causes, impacts and risks, and the options to reduce them and become more resilient. If you're looking for a quick summary of things, this graphic should definitely help.
0: Yeah, definitely check it out. And while you're at it, another graphic to look at is on page 11. And that one shows the impacts of climate change on ecosystems and on human systems. So each section has subcategories and shows how confident the authors are in attributing the risks that they face to climate change. Quick spoiler alert. There's a lot of high or very high confidence ratings here.
1: And with reports like these, it's so important to highlight the solutions that are most impactful and feasible, which in this assessment was, to name a few, a um, focus on government, finance, and technologies.
0: So Matt McGrath's article from the BBC that you can also find in your show notes organizes the main takeaways from the IPCC report pretty well. So what we're going to do here is go through each of those five things that he lists and discuss each one in detail with some supporting evidence from the other things that are linked in your show notes, which includes the big IPCC report. And here we go. Number one, things are way worse than we thought. Basically, what's going on here is that climate models always predict things in a range, and that's because it's impossible to say this exactly is going to happen. But good modeling will say this could happen, this is likely mm-hmm. to happen, so on and so forth. Climate-related impacts have been found to be on the higher end of what the modelers were predicting.
1: And with more research happening in the climate change field, these predictions are becoming more fine-tuned, like being able to set aside the noise signals of like natural variability, but also factoring in changes like Arctic sea ice and ocean heat content, which are a much bigger deal lately. So the fact that climate-related impacts were found to be on the higher end of what modelers predicted is definitely something to think about.
0: Yeah, for sure. So from a human standpoint, 40% of the world's population is considered highly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And when you think about it, this totally makes sense. People have historically settled on coasts, and I think this is something we've touched Mm -hmm. on in, in several episodes at this point, but originally trade was centered around proximity to ports so the wealthier cities where people wanted to live and you know build their livelihood were going to be close to the water and that hasn't changed because as those port cities got built up and got more wealthy more people started to move there for a better life and unfortunately now what we're seeing is people who did the least to cause climate change are going to be the most impacted because they are moving towards the ports and they're moving out towards, you know, areas that are very close to the sea. So for a city like Giselle and I live in, New York, where we're going to be impacted by sea level rise, we also live in a city that has a high enough relative wealth to adapt pretty Mm -hmm. well. Some of those underdeveloped nations that have port, coastal cities where a lot of people live they can't afford the adaptation as much so those people who are still developing are going to have a huge huge impact that they really didn't do much to cause
1: yeah definitely it's it's not proportional right like a lot of these smaller nations that are underdeveloped um it's it's really unfortunate that there's an imbalance there. It's not equal. Um, so mm-hmm. in addition to what you're saying, Matt, like from a food standpoint, climate change will cause about thirty percent of maize and fifty percent of beans to become ungrowable in Africa. And I'm gonna guess like that's the number of species in those like in that area, but parts of the world will be unable to support people because of, you know, more frequent drought, sea level rise and time is running out to fix that it's a it's a you know recurring theme
0: yeah and it's tough because that's another another example of you know most of the countries in Africa haven't historically emitted as much carbon as the European Union United States Canada China India like but those are the places where it's going to be really hard to grow certain types of food because drought in the Sahara is going to cause it to be really really hot and really really dry and then all of the areas around the coast are going to be impacted by sea level
1: rise it's that's gonna there's gonna be a huge spike in like all of these uh, climate migrants you know moving from Mm -hmm. these inhospitable areas to more hospitable but i mean they didn't these 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 countries didn't cause the bulk of the emissions that are causing the movement that are causing the migration so it's um that's where the empathy comes in you know like we should be looking out for other people not just ourselves you know
0: yeah and the issue with climate change is we're seeing more and more that along with being a big problem for the people of the world and the ecosystems of the world it's really really an environmental justice problem at this point most definitely So the second thing that Matt McGrath brings up is the loss and damage finally gets scientific backing. What this means is developing countries have long been championing the idea that losses and damage related to climate change are and will continue to be serious. Richer nations tend to have the ability to adapt more easily so they could kind of kick this issue down the road a little bit. And that's something that Giselle and I just kind of mentioned with saying how We both live in the U.S. We both specifically live in New York City. We can kind of avoid this problem for a little bit longer than some of the developing countries. Richer nations have also feared the idea of paying what developing nations would consider their fair share to fix the losses and damage. Wealthier nations got rich by taking advantage of fossil fuels, which have driven this climate crisis. So developing nations tend to want an equity-based approach to fighting climate change rather than an equality-based approach, meaning that those with more means, who are also those who have caused more harm, should pay more to fight this crisis.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And in this report, the IPCC says plainly that the impacts of climate change include, quote, widespread adverse impacts and related losses and damages to nature and people, end quote. By the IPCC putting this in writing, it may boost the odds of COP27, including loss and damages in the focus of this year's climate treaty.
0: Yeah, and that's something to look forward to. Like it's it's still eight months away from COP27. We just had yeah. COP26 in November, but COP26 was very underwhelming. And part of that was they wanted to accelerate the timeline to get things really moving And in doing that, they were like, let's come back. We now are all on the same page with our goals. Let's iron them out for next year. So it's hard to stay hopeful sometimes. And I think COP26 was a real slap in the face because we had put a lot of stock in it being our last best chance to do something. And a lot of impactful countries were like, you know what, we aren't prepared for this and we're going to address it at COP27. I'm angry yeah. that we weren't prepared for this. It's not like this is a new nope. issue we didn't know anything Excellent. about, but this year really, really could fix all of those issues that, you know, were were brought up last mm-hmm. year and with the COP26 agreement. So stay hopeful.
1: Yeah, I, that's the really kind of the most important thing to think about. And, you know, when a lot of these news and a lot of these reports come out and it definitely, of course is bleak because at times it is, um, it's staying hopeful. Yeah. I mean, that's all you got to do is, is hope and believe, right? Because yeah, cop 26 was a lot of, you know, Oh, we'll do it next year. And you know, that's kind of been the approach to (laughs) climate, you know, action for the past two decades. Yeah. I was going to say like 40 years, but like, Hope and believe. I mean, the hope and believe.
0: And hit the streets, like protest and show with your wallet that, you know, we're not going to be okay with just, hey, we'll do it next year. Like the diet can only start Monday for so many Mondays before you admit there's a problem. And I think as a society, we're ready to admit that there's a problem five years ago. So we really need to encourage our leaders to do something and yeah. whether that's with our money, whether that's mm-hmm. with our votes or whether yeah. that's taken to the streets and protesting. in, you know, there's people's climate marches all around the country fairly often, like sign up, go make a cool sign, make your voice heard, do it. They're fun. It's cool to be around other climate activists.
1: Hmm. Most definitely. Yeah. I mean, if you can think of a way that makes you feel You know positive and hopeful about the change that you're making and like the impact that you're having on this movement all power to you and even better when you can find others that are on the same wavelength as you for sure all
0: right number three technology is not a silver bullet and basically for this one it's that tech isn't just this universal fix that's going to make everything better Some technology that's designed to limit or reduce carbon dioxide emissions might actually make things worse. An example of this that they list is carbon capture, where removing CO2 from the atmosphere to store in the soil or in the oceans can actually cause that carbon to be released into the atmosphere.
1: So this one means that it's better to reduce the carbon we put into the atmosphere rather than to remove carbon we've already emitted.
0: So two examples that I think of for this are... You know, gas mileage efficiency in vehicles. There's been a ton of studies where some people, when they get a more efficient car, let's say they're coming from, you know, a pickup truck and then they go to a mid sized sedan, hybrid, or whatever, they're more likely to drive more because it costs less to do that. I know it's hard to imagine driving more because it costs less right now, but (laughs) there was a time when gas wasn't as expensive. And People used to love road tripping like six months ago. So you get that car that's going to cost you less to drive around. You end up driving more and that's going to increase your emissions. So just because your car gets more miles to the gallon, you end up being like, well, whatever. We can just drive more because it's fun and, and it's fun to road trip. So that's an example like this where, you know, it's better to reduce your mileage than it is to emit more. Just because it's, you know, more efficient what you're doing. And another example of that is plastics. You know, we, we talk about this all the time, but rather than getting, you know, more recyclable plastic bottles, it's better to just get a reusable one that isn't in the recycling process at all. It's just mm-hmm. one that you keep filling up, throwing it in your dishwasher, filling it up, throwing it in your dishwasher. Like that's that's gonna reduce your plastic consumption
1: investing in you know glass metal things that yeah might be a little bit more expensive at the moment but in the long run are going to be less expensive like you won't have to keep buying those bottles constantly and of course even longer term it won't end up in a landfill so I mean it's an investment at the time and I totally understand that a lot of these you know products that are um more sustainable can can add a little bit more to um can be a little bit more expensive, mm-hmm. might hurt a little bit more on the wallet, but it's definitely an investment. It's 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 definitely worth it. And um, also, you know, putting time to have a change in mindset as well. And mm-hmm. like understanding, like Matt, you were saying, with the there's a mindset change with, you know, driving less in a car that has worse mileage versus driving more in a car that has better mile uh, gas mileage and the same goes with the plastics versus glass or metal i mean it's Mm -hmm. just a change of mindset so it's not about focusing on removing the carbon that we've already given off but reducing the amount we put into the atmosphere in the first place
0: yeah well said and with that we're going to take a quick break and when we get back we'll go into the rest of this report a little bit Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-L-T-A.co and code TPT. back to The Planet Today, folks. Moving on, number four, cities offer hope. And this one's kind of interesting to me because cities typically produce the most emissions from buildings and electricity consumption, but they also offer an opportunity to avoid the worst impacts of warming.
1: Cities have very dense populations, so implementing renewable energy, greener public transportation, and more efficient buildings have larger impacts than in more rural areas.
0: Yeah, and when you think of it that way, it makes sense. Something like electric cars and more charging stations powered by renewable energy would have a big impact in the suburbs or in rural areas. But like I said, Giselle and I both live in New York City. So if an apartment building here is powered entirely by renewable energy or the subway goes completely carbon free, think about how many people that actually impacts.
1: Another thing that we mentioned earlier is how some of the most vulnerable people to climate change live in cities because, as we mentioned, many cities are located by coast. So by prioritizing coastal cities, you can have a large impact on more people quickly.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that's not to say don't focus on all cities because, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be cities out in let's say the Midwest, where you want to have this big impact on decarbonizing the grid and getting more people impacted by greener technology. But if we're going to be prioritizing who needs help quickest, we're going to be looking at you know a coastal city in Bangladesh. We're going to be looking at coastal cities on small island nations in Tuvalu, for example, because those are the places that are going to get impacted first. And by focusing on the cities there, we can impact a lot of people very quickly while also still focusing on your less coastal cities to lower their emissions too. Because if we don't lower their emissions, all of those coastal cities that we're trying to help, they're still going to get impacted by sea level rise.
1: Mm -hmm. It's all about priority.
0: Yeah. And it's this multifaceted approach where we kind of need to check off all of our boxes at once, which is totally possible with proper planning. Like that sounds daunting, but you know there's people who dedicate their lives to urban planning and to you know coastal planning and coastal engineering so if it sounds scary it's because you're not in the field and i know that because it sounds scary to me and i don't know how coastal engineering works but i know a lot of smart coastal engineers that are working on stuff to combat sea level rise so rest assured we have the right people in the right positions to make a difference it's just about planning out how we want to go about doing that where we're going to have the most impact on the most people right away while making sure that if we solve problem A, problem B isn't going to end up recausing problem A.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, putting all of these puzzle pieces together where, you know, all these stakeholders are benefiting from these changes. All of these people all over the world are benefiting from these changes, but, you know, getting all of our ducks in a row and, you know, going for it. So it, it's going to, like Matt, you were saying, it's going to take a lot of planning, but at this stage in the game, like we have to, you yeah. know, we have to put in the time to make those plans to make sure things are in order because people's lives are at stake. Absolutely. So.
0: Yeah. Some, sometimes when I think of, you know, like the, the cop 26 or, you know, cop 27, that's coming up. I'm often reminded of uh, Avengers Endgame where I forget who it is. It might be Black Widow, but she she looks at um, Captain America and she's like, I hope this works. And he goes, I know it will because I don't know oh, what yeah, I'm yeah. going to do if it doesn't. And and that's how mm-hmm. I feel about this. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen if we don't get this done. And for that reason, I know it's going to work out because if we're all feeling this almost desperation to see a big impact you know that the world leaders who are negotiating at these climate parties, they're also feeling it and they're also experiencing it. So I feel like I have a lot of faith in the process, mm-hmm. even though the process has been largely underwhelming in the past yeah. couple of years. Yeah. Like since Paris, it's kind of been, underwhelming. And I think that there's enough public pressure now where we're not going to see that this year. Mm -hmm. All right. The last thing in that BBC article is the small window is closing fast. So in part one, the author said that the worst impacts can be avoided if we act in time. This remains true in part two, but the authors also make something very clear at the end of the report. Our window to prevent the worst ends in 2030. They say any further delay in concentrated global action will miss a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable
1: future. The authors say that we can avoid the worst case scenario by one, cutting emissions drastically, two, boosting spending on climate adaptation, and three, investing in education, health systems, and social justice for people to cope with rising temperatures.
0: Yeah, and they also focus heavily on conservation. According to Inger Anderson, who's the head of the UN Environment Program, investing in nature by preserving 30 to 50% of the world's surface can be a savior for our planet and for our people. In other words, nature can save us if we save nature first.
1: Absolutely. I mean, not only does nature, you know, offer a natural removal process of many of these emissions that we're giving off, but- there's biodiversity mm-hmm. positives there, you know, there, that help with environmental productivity. There's, you know, the benefit of nature just on an intrinsic level. It's it's not an afterthought, you know, it should be yeah. part of the planning process uh, that we were talking about before. So um, for many, many reasons.
0: Yeah, well said. So there is an article that we linked in the show notes today and Personally, I found it interesting, but we don't really have much to discuss for it. And it's basically just about how we need to ignore economists when fighting climate change because we don't know how expensive the climate crisis is really going to be. All speculating is pointless because it's just that. It's speculating. We also know that whatever the climate crisis is going to cost, not doing anything is going to cost way more. So they pretty much just said that cost-benefit analyses are pointless to an issue like this
1: and i mean how can you put a price on um you know cities going underwater you know how can you put a price on someone having to leave their home that they have grown up in for their entire lives you can't to escape right rising sea levels so absolutely ignore ignore them uh Mm -hmm. to a point right so the article brings up carbon taxes uh how certain think tanks or fossil fuel PR companies will use economics to show that we don't need government intervention to fix climate change. And a cost-benefit analysis is an easy tool to do that. It's pretty cut and dry. Mm -hmm. But fighting climate change is expensive. And typically, a cost-benefit analysis will show that. They can't show the true cost of climate change mitigation or the cost of doing nothing. So, definitely check it out if this article interests you.
0: Yeah. So, Something I want to close with sort of as a source for hope here um, is an article by Catherine Clifford of CNBC who writes, U.S. can get to 100% clean energy with wind, water, solar, and zero nuclear, Stanford professor says. Giselle and I aren't going to get into the nuclear debate here, but my general thoughts about this article are if we can do all that by 2050, we could probably do it much easier without phasing out nuclear. Just briefly, I'm fine with phasing out nuclear once we reach 100% from renewable sources, but in the meantime, let's just get carbon-free. Mark Jacobson is a Stanford professor of civil environmental engineering and the director of Stanford's Atmosphere and Energy Program, and his calculations in this study found that transitioning to a clean energy grid should happen by 2035, and that 80% of this adjustment could happen by 2030. So to me, this is really exciting.
1: Yeah, and I've read it in multiple places that a big obstacle with the United States distributing and even selling renewable energy is our incredibly outdated power grid made up of transmission lines that weren't built to handle extreme weather due to climate change, which we're facing more and more often on a daily basis nowadays. So investment and new technologies in this area is going to be huge when shifting to a clean energy grid and doing it in a much more efficient and faster way.
0: Mm -hmm. And I know that we said earlier that tech isn't some silver bullet that's going to fix everything. But look, it's a hell of a start. And sometimes the first step is, hey, this is possible because, you know, the first thing people are going to ask when they see this report is. Transitioning to clean energy sounds cool, but can we actually do it? And this study says yes. So that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. Nick and I will be back on Friday for some quick hits.
1: Make sure to follow along on our socials at Planet Today Pod for clips from the show and an exclusive quick hit Matt is doing every week.
0: I reached quadruple digits in TikTok views twice in the past two weeks. So let's keep that streak rolling.
1: Very nice. (laughs) For The Planet Today, I am Giselle Herrera.
0: And I'm Matt Norden. See you on Friday.
1: Bye.